This episode is brought to you by freedadcourse.com. You are always one conversation away from changing your life. And the power of hello is something that I subscribe to every single day. And I'm always saying hello to new people everywhere I go. Increasing your opportunity, increasing your connection, and getting access to the solutions to the problems that you are facing, whether you're on active duty or just beginning your veteran transition, or even transitioning out for 20 years. On the other side of hello are the solutions that you're looking for. Again, head on over to freedadcourse.com. Get your five-episode audio course to create more connection, create more friendships, and get back to living the life that you're trying to design. Dory 1, this is Fire Team Delta. Dad's coming home. Welcome to the Military Veteran Dad Podcast, where it is our mission to bring every dad home. I am your host, Ben Colloy. I'm a United States Marine veteran, husband, and a father. We will bring authentic conversations to inspire action in your life so we can close the gap between the dad you are today and the dad you want to be tomorrow. This is the Military Veteran Dad Podcast. Hey guys, welcome back to Military Veteran Dad. I'm your host, Ben Colloy. This is episode 142, and this is on the other side of Thanksgiving, hopefully you had some great memories, whether you're away from home, whether you were connected to family, whatever it was, I hope that you were able to find some way to find joy, some way to find gratitude and thankfulness on that day where we slow down from everything right before the holidays and show gratitude for what we have in life. And if you've been listening to this podcast, I want to appreciate you. If you've been a longtime listener, whether you've just been a first-time listener or a few episodes, thank you from the bottom of my heart. These downloads continue to grow. People are out there sharing the podcast. And if that was you who shared the podcast last week, thank you for sharing that the downloads show. If you have not shared the podcast, it is the easiest way to show gratitude towards me and help me get this podcast out to more people to help them come home as a dad. If you've gotten value from this, if you've gotten some actionable advice to apply in your life, something to change how you see the world, I appreciate if you were to share this podcast with someone that you think or know really needs to know that they're not alone as a military dad and what they're feeling. So today we have a unique episode because of where the episode came from. Andrew came into my life because I camped out in his backyard. And if there was ever a more awkward way to introduce a podcast, that is how this episode happened. Andrew is a Navy veteran who out in the middle of Kentucky has found God's earth of some amazing land, just the sunsets and just the, the quietness out where this guy lives is unbelievable. I'll always remember the morning after waking up in the back of his hay field. We were camping out there, and it was just an amazing experience. So Andrew's story is one of choosing to invite something deeper, choosing to let go of what was and fully embracing what could be. And if you've been listening to the podcast, that is something that we're often talking about, losing, looking forward to letting go so that you can embrace what could be. As veterans, we often hold on to so many stories, so much baggage sometimes, so many different things, but it's those things that often hold us back. It's those things of what was, something we lost, no matter where that loss come from, it's that holding on to that prevents us from inviting the change that can come into our life. And that is exactly what Andrew did. He understood where he was, he understood what he needed, and he understood that he had to go to a place that maybe he'd never been to really see how life could unfold. So guys, without further ado, let's get started with this episode with Andrew Barnes, and I'll be with you on the other side for my big takeaway. Welcome to the podcast, Andrew. Thanks. Glad to be here. This episode 
got started in probably the strangest place that I have yet to start a podcast episode, and that is in the back of your farm. Myself and a good friend of mine, Dan Zaner, used Hip Camp to camp at your place. And at your place, there is a mushroom farm, which we didn't really realize when we were booking it that it was actually a farm for mushrooms. We thought it was just a place where you had mushrooms growing and that was something you could just go pick out in the wilderness. No, you actually are raising mushrooms. And it was this really interesting experience. We had a great conversation. You told us all about it. And I'm just really excited to talk to you because this is something most people don't really even get a an inch, maybe even a centimeter of the world exposed to. So listening to this episode, you're going to learn a lot about mushrooms in the context of not the ones that you smoke, but the kind that you eat and what they can do and all the different things that they can. There's a lot of weird things about mushrooms. But Andrew, thank you for giving us your time tonight to come on the podcast. I'm really excited. Uh, I'm excited as well. It's a pleasure to be here with you, Ben. So Andrew, before we hit record, we were talking about some of the stories that you've got to tell and I want to go to one that we actually didn't talk about before we hit records, and we'll put you on the spot. What brought you to the Navy? What were you looking for from the military that life hadn't given you yet? Oh, yeah. Uh, great question. I was at the University of Texas at Austin, and I just felt unprepared for so many of the obstacles and just different aspects of uh, being out in the world on my own. And, you know, I look back at it now and it's like, well, a lot of that stuff was pretty simple and uh, you know, life was much less complicated. But at the time, I, you know, felt like I should have been more prepared for it. And I started questioning, you know, what am I going to do about this? And it was obvious that university was there to, you know, try to weed you out, basically. And I was uh, feeling like I was needing more. And I started looking into it. I remembered that uh, I had, I've always been passionate about music and my instructor uh, in, I was an oboe player was this gentleman named John Cheville, and he had been the first chair obus for the the Army's top you know, band, the one that follows the president around, that kind of thing. And when I was a senior, he asked me if I thought about uh, military. I said, no, not really. I'm not going to go to college. And he said, oh, well, you know, it was good for me. And that phrase coming from that, gentlemen. Um, and it changed my life. Uh, just knowing that it was good for him, you know, someone who I know and I respect, and he was a fantastic oboe teacher. Uh, and, you know, I, I studied with him for years. He was one of the longest, you know, teachers I'd ever been with, I guess. I, you know, I hadn't really thought about that before. Anyway, um, I went to a recruiting station in Austin, Texas, where they had, you know, like at a strip mall, they had all the, all of the uh, services side by side and they each had a separate office. And yeah, I remember um, I figured, well, I'm going to check them out. And I went and talked to the army. I went and talked to the Marines and I knew that I didn't want to be in either one of those. <laughs> uh, 
And I was planning on joining the Air Force, really, because my dad had been in the Air Force. My grandfather had been in the Air Force. I had other family members who'd been in the Air Force. It was kind of a family thing. And uh, the Air Force guy was just very unpleasant. And I went next door to the Navy guy last, and they were just chilling out in there. And they're like, oh, yeah, here's a book about the Navy. And they flip open, you know, they've got the big leather bound book of all the different jobs and stuff. And they had pictures and I was flipping through and I found a guy in a hammock on the back deck of a Mark V. And I was like, what is this? Oh, yeah, that's the special warfare combatant craft crewmen. They're like the modern day Vietnam boat guys. And, you know, they've got some kind of like a line they, they say to describe it. It sounds really good. I was like, yeah, all right. <laughs> and that was it. That moment uh, was the one that changed everything then. Yeah. Yeah. I could see myself doing it. And uh, it was, you know, at that time in my life, it was like, I'll, I'll sign up for this. It'll take a while to to get there. And by the time I get there, hopefully be, I'll be ready. And I had confidence in myself as someone who could handle adversity. And so I never looked back. And so I signed up in July of 2001 and they do the delayed entry program. So they said I would be leaving in September. My mom dropped me off at the DFW airport. They go to boot camp on September 10th. And she said, Andrew, I'm so proud of you. There's never been a better time to be in the military. And the very next day was my first day of boot camp, was September 11th, 2001. That is like the, not, I don't know if it's, um, just the mysteriousness to that and how it happened and how it probably still played so much of a role in what you chose to do later in life as well. Yeah. Uh, you know, things happen and you kind of just have to happen along with them. And that's how I felt at the time was, all right, this is happening. I'm, I'm going to happen along with it. And I, you know, it just, I, you know, when you, I guess when you make big decisions and, you know, world changing things happen immediately afterwards, um, it, it kind of self reinforces in a way of like, Oh, well, yeah, this just feels right. Um, you know, that like you're changing the rest of the world's changing too. So it's, uh, it just didn't, it didn't require a whole lot of questioning on my mind. It just seemed like, well, I'm going to join the military. Of course, it's going to be like the day after we go to war. <laughs> so, uh, you know, and it was, it was all the more motivating. Let's go back a little bit. So you said there was something that you were ill prepared for as you were in college, almost like you were missing some core components of your adulting operating system as a dad yeah. to a five-year-old. Do you know what you need to do differently with him to help him? avoid what you left or started your adulthood with or was missing with? I, I certainly have 
uh, strategies for dealing with the, the bigger issues that I felt like I was facing. Um, and, you know, part of it is just how to get out on your own and be enterprising. Um, it's a skill set to, you know, take one thing, turn it into something else, and then, you know, develop a strategy to get that, you know, to do more of itself. And I, I feel like that's, you know, sort of a, maybe the, the, you know, one of the kernel skills of, of being an entrepreneur and I, you know, having the sensibility to do something like that organ in an organized way. I know a lot of people who function that way and, you know, in my recollection, knowing people from high school and that kind of thing who are now very successful, it's like I can identify that these people were organized uh, very early in how to administrate the things they were trying to get done. I and, like that because there's a component of fatherhood. Well, actually, as I say that, every component of fatherhood initially feels really messy. But when you talk about having structure, <laughs> it's almost like you're trying to have a vision with a structure of not like a destination or a designated roadmap, but almost where you have the structure of like the bumpers on a bowling alley. Like you want your kids to understand that this is That's how you put the line. ball down the, the, the lane. Father, fathers of the bumpers make sure they don't go out of bounds, but you're still trying to give them that path and that um, place to really explore that component of structure of how could they create a business when they're 10 to learn how to leverage money or to learn to leverage time so they don't have to go off and trade their time for money. Like these early mm -hmm. components that aren't even taught or mentioned in school, but yet could be the structure that changes entirely how a kid sees the world. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and you know, some of this stuff just, becomes evident uh, that they want to play in, in structured orderly ways sometimes. I mean, we have this game where uh, our son is, is a shopkeeper or shop owner or, you know, restaurateur or whatever, and he'll come and, you know, sort of, act, you know, we have this play where, um, you know, he's exchanging, you know, you know, imaginary money for imaginary you know, services or you know, pizza or whatever. And so, you know, um, but the more props and stuff that come into it of like a cash tray and monopoly money and all this stuff, it becomes more minute detail and, you know, we start learning, you know, the numbers that are on the, the bills and this kind of stuff. And he's paying attention when it's this play and it's generating interest in the, you know, sort of reality through play. Um, and the more we can do that kind of stuff, it feels like there's, uh, you know, there's an extension to that where, you know, we're playing with these ideas of, of um, building things or 
uh, being enterprising. Um, yeah, he had a great one early on. He just he started finding worms everywhere because he was out in the mushroom compost. And hey, mushroom compost is great for worms. So he gets this idea that he's going to start a worm company and help other farmers that need worms for their gardens. And he starts collecting worms and putting them in a bucket of dirt and stuff. And like, you know what? We could sell worms to like the local uh, uh, gas stations. They're selling them for people going out to Nolan Lake. And um, it's like, you could invest, you could just, you know, with no investment, you could start a worm farm as a five-year-old and have a busy, you know, business of selling, you know, we could sell night crawlers to people, the hip campers, to the gas stations around here. Um, and that could all be his project that you know, didn't cost anything to start, but we get five bucks every time he sells a, you know, a little container of them. Um, and, you know, that kind of, I was like, damn, you know, that could, that could fund like an entire, you know, Pokemon habit or something. Or so, buy his first car. Yeah. Once, uh, <laughs> once sure that's a little start, bit scary as to thinking about your five-year-old driving. Right. We're, yeah, we're dealing with much more immediate things these mm-hmm. days. <laughs> so, Trying to fund uh, the roadblocks it, fund. Exactly. So, um, seeing those kind of opportunities out there, uh, I'm trying to take advantage of that. And he's interested in the farm and he likes to come down and, and clean things really. And we make a big deal out of it. When he cleans something, that is fantastic. The farm, I mean, he gets a bucket out and he'll put some soap in, get a big brush and he'll get something you know, covered in suds and then hose it down. Man, that's amazing. Um, you know, we just try to celebrate that kind of, uh, that the, the work involved and get something clean. Because, you know, I, I honestly don't know how the homage do it. Like having children that seem to be interested in everything that the family is doing, that seems like a thing that uh, is more of a pre, uh, pre-modern era thing. I don't know. Those are the I've always been true. fascinated by that same thought of the, the family connection, the family, we're in it together. Um, and just the, the idea of working together. And also you, you mentioned a story when we were visiting about going, asking the Amish for help to put up a shed and yes. there were these young kids doing things that most teenagers are afraid to do. And just like the, the work ethic and the confidence these kids would have at such a young age. And like observing that was just kind of uh, an interesting experience. I remember you mentioning about I was in awe. Honestly, it's impressive. And the kids that I know, and I, you know, we are all neighbors and they enjoy their lives in a profound way. So, you know, I, I've talked to a lot of the people uh, who feel like, you know, there's certain aspects of modern culture that they prefer. Um, and I certainly, you know, 
question whether or not I have the grit to, to live that lifestyle myself. I, I seriously doubt it, but it always looks uh, good on a postcard in the summer, but it's really tested in the winter when you've done the work to hopefully survive and have enough indeed. food for everything to get through and everything. Indeed. And, you know, you know we have a wood burning stove here, so I've become accustomed to keeping the fire going, but I mean, that's, that becomes a way of life. Um, and, uh, it's, it's impressive. So I, you know, I'm certainly better off having some Amish neighbors. Um, that's for sure. I hope they're better off having me, but <laughs> I, I, you know, I'm sure they'd be fine either way. Yeah. Let's go to a moment where let's rewind this story of entrepreneur spirit, because it doesn't sound like it was something that was always there. And before we were recording, you were talking about a story about really kind of where it all started because you transitioned out of the Navy and just adopted what everybody told you you needed to do. You picked going up to school. You mentioned going for music therapy and take us to that time. And like, just as it was unraveling, like you had this plan, but yet it felt like it was made out of. I don't know, I can't think of a good analogy right now. And usually I have a good analogy, but it was just falling apart in those times where it just wasn't sticking and wasn't working. Yeah. Well, it seemed like a really good idea at the time. Uh, <laughs> uh, but really, I, I've always been you know, a musician at heart and I've always had that as part of my life. And by the time I got out of the Navy, I decided that I wanted to put my effort into something, you know, therapeutic in some way. And I, I knew I didn't want to go become a doctor. I, you know, I, I just have a different skill set than um, the one it takes to acquire those skills. And um, you know, I've, I, I know I'm pretty good at some things and not so good at other things. And so, you know, I wasn't looking to go, go be a rocket scientist or a doctor. Um, I, I started getting into uh, the idea of music therapy my last year in the Navy. Um, and it just felt like calling, you know, it's like use music to make people feel better. All right, I am there. So I knew I was going to Louisville. And I got into University of, of, of Louisville and uh, they had a music therapy program and I got into the program and went to orientation, you know, meet and greet of faculty and all that stuff. Um, and when it came to finally sit down and hammer out my schedule. I was meeting with the head of the department and this person uh, presented an impossible for me to meet schedule. I was like, wow, uh, there's nothing we can do about this. And the response I got was that it seems unreasonable, but uh, this person had learned that there's actually very good reasons for these kind of difficulties and that, you know, I, 
and I, I was working at a music store at the time and it was just a perfect setup where uh, I was going to school, had a job at a music store, was going to go be a music therapist as in the community already uh, felt like I was making connections and doing all the right stuff. And the schedule is tearing apart. And finally, the advice I get is to quit my job at the music store, which they acknowledge was a perfect opportunity, <laughs> uh, but quit that job and get hired third shift at UPS and try to make that schedule work. And it was all to meet uh, a program requirement that had nothing to do with music therapy. And just felt like an impossibility coming from my mind of very structured, orderly, you know, one team Navy uh, organization. You know, it's you go to uh, take a class in the Navy and they're like, oh, you don't have a prereq? Well, you know, we want to make sure you get this class. Um, uh, so, you know, someone will give you a dirt dive or, you know, or get you caught up or, you know, you know, find a way to make things work. And I just, I knew that there was some way we could make this work. And this person was just not having it. And I was lucky. I knew I, I was distraught at that point. I mean, I was, you know, I mean, the schedule just wouldn't work with my, the schedule I had in my life, which I'd worked very hard to get. Um, and it just seemed unreasonable. And so I was talking to a friend of mine who was a music therapist who came by the store just like the next day. And so lucky that this individual showed up and, you know, I described what I was going to through him. And he said, it's, it's okay if you don't want to do this, you know? And it's like, man, hearing that really helped. Because it's easy to fall in love with a plan. And, you know, this is advice that I knew already not to fall in love with a plan. I had a lieutenant who would say that exact thing, never fall in love with a plan. And there I was in love with a plan and didn't know what to do. But luckily, you know, have people in our lives who uh, are good influences and you know, sometimes just, you know, give you a permission, you know, you just need to hear that sometimes. <laughs> and it's, you know, I don't, uh, and so that was refreshing. And I went to the counselor the next day, a different, you know, just a general counselor for the university. And it was like, what can I get into? You know, put me in philosophy or something. I'll figure it out. Um, I ended up in chemistry and, um, that, uh, that became my course of study until I realized that I just needed to graduate. Uh, I've been in for, you know, I, I mean, you, when I lost the focus of having a plan from the get go, it's like the whole idea 
was part of this plan. And it's like, I, uh, it became a real conundrum to be like, why am I in school at all if I'm not fulfilling the plan that got me here? Uh, and, you know, that created, you know, just I, a long college career after that. Luckily, I had the GI Bill. You were on the Van Wilder plan, if you remember that movie, where he went to school yeah. for like the better part of a decade, or the Chris Farley plan. Not yes. Chris Farley, Tommy yes. Boy would be the right character to label that is. Well, I was relieved the valley Victorian of my class was a gentleman who had been in school for seven years. And, you know, he described his situation and it had been real similar to mine in that he had, uh, that he had just gotten into school straight out of high school, but, um, you know, didn't have a, a calling you know, pulling him in any one thing and was just, you know, there because he was supposed to go to college and, you know, changed his interest <laughs> at some point and had to, you know, uh, start from there. And so, you know, it, it feels like that's a whole other thing. Um, and uh, that gentleman represented those of us who'd been in for a minute um, you know, very well, should I have. Let's go into a particular area within that story. For a veteran that just got out is hearing that they need to go use the GI Bill because that's the number one benefit that everybody talks about, that they should be doing that. What is that advice that you wish you knew that they need to know? I knew this, and I, I did try to apply this as much as possible, and it's the mistakes that I made were when I wasn't applying this as hard as I could. And that is to treat school like you're on a mission and to not lose any focus and make it your hobby, you know, make it the thing that, you know, is interesting and to just, you know, if you got to learn the specs on, you know, this, you know, some people just have to immerse themselves in, in the details of something. It's like, don't immerse yourself in the social life. <laughs> don't immerse yourself in having another hobby. Just immerse yourself in this one thing and be monastic about it. Like, be your own monastery. And um, that alone will set you apart. And will give, I mean, the times that I did this, I felt like I was, you know, I, I felt like those were the times when I was most on fire, you know, in terms of like getting things done. And it was because I had made the monastery of myself and was just, you know, getting after it. And, you know, that's the kind of thing. It's like people notice when you're, you know, so into a singular thing like that. And it's unusual. And people are, you know, will be like, oh, wow, you know, you know, how do you stay so focused? Uh, you know, if they notice. But, you know, in terms of like getting out of the military and feeling like you're 
doing something special you know, that you're still, you know, out there getting it, you know, getting after it, getting it done. A lot of, a lot of what I missed, you know, was the feeling of purpose that you get from, you know, having a mission or have, you know, having that thing you're tearing into. And, you know, it's, it's, it's that, put that focus into just the school. And uh, if you're going to go to school, I mean, that's a big thing. You're going to go to school, do something useful. You know, it's, it's a rough situation to uh, get through a college degree and get on the other side of it, feeling like it didn't lead to anything. I know so many people who felt like that and the thing that would have made the biggest difference in their lives would have been to, you know, go to a technical school and get a certification in welding or become an electrician. Um, and, you know, you're never going to be unemployed or not essential uh, if you have those skills and, you know, they're much easier to get than, uh, masters and um, you name it. Advice because it, it it speaks to the seriousness of what we need to take our life, but it also speaks to keeping a wide view of where we want to go, and not closing yourself off to like what you said. Don't be afraid to throw out the plan. Don't be so stuck to it and married to it that you have to. I've heard it also called a sunken cost fallacy that you're invested so much into becoming a doctor that the idea that you made a mistake that you could go back and start over, or even a lawyer would be a similar category. Like your life's, you only get one life. You either abort now, or you're going to be all in and you're going to be 20 years down the road and wish you changed your life when you had that chance. Yeah. And coming out of the military, especially, I think it's real easy to, lose sight of the fact that when you're entrenched in a military position or when you're, you know, when, when you're doing something difficult and it gets harder, you have an immense, you know, sort of resources, you know, backing you up. If you're in the military or work for the government at all, really, uh, you know, obviously they're, they're trying not to spend money on things they don't need to. But what I'm saying is that uh, when things get tough, they have resources to throw the problem that you don't as an individual. And it's easy to be like, oh, no, I'm good at doing difficult stuff. I'm good at doing, you know, Mission Impossible, whatever. You know, I, it, that's a thing that I feel like in... Um, in the military, it's easy to, to start looking at things like, you know, it's just another job to do. We're just going to go figure it out and do it. And, you know, in life, there's just some things that you're never really going to be that good at. And uh, when you, I, what I found was that I was constantly having to rely on the skills that are my weakest while I was in school. And I, I was seeing myself diminish the skills that I was the best at. 
in the process. Uh, and looking back on it, it's like the things I was good at, I could have done, I, you know, I could have gone through a lot less effort to get stability I needed to actually focus on the things I was good at. I love that because it just, it highlights how it's an improvement process that we need to not fully be stuck to. Let's go into a different area. Let's go a different part of your story that I know is just as equally interesting. I'll speed it up for the audience because I want to get to the good part here. You had another random moment, not just the guy walking into your store and talking about like, hey, you don't have to do this life. You also had this weird random moment where you went on this journey, I believe, while you're in the Navy up the Mississippi into Louisville and ended up having like a drink at a bar where you met your wife. And then just to fast forward even a little bit further, you start, I believe you get married and your wife goes off to a conference where she hears about mushroom growing and she comes back all excited that you'll never believe what I just came back and I'm excited to do. And that leaps into a whole new world. Did I get the story right? Yeah. Well, when she went to that conference, I had been growing mushrooms as a hobby for a number of years. And so that was kind of what connected it was uh, she came back and was like, have you ever thought about doing that for real? And I hadn't really ever thought about it because I'd never met anyone doing it. Well, she had just met someone doing it and was like, Hey, should we try to find a reason not to do this? Yeah, sure. And so we set out on finding a reason not to turn a fun hobby into a career. And we spent about two years, uh, you know, really working through the problem. And in the process, we, we built like a 200 page business plan. And finally we were at a point where like, we can explain why this is a good idea. And we, we started, you know, we called bankers and we started doing that. And eventually, you know, someone agreed with us and it's been a pretty good idea uh, for the most part. I mean, I, you know, you get into the aspects of, you know, experience and the cost of experience. Um, and, you know, I, in, in general, things are working out. So, um, you know, so far a good idea. Do you, did you, once you're, now that you're in the mushroom area and you're in the entrepreneur world and you look back through the lens of like, even in the very beginning where you've talked about missing in school before joining the Navy, do you see that common thread? Like it was all leading to something bigger and even something insensical, like being a mushroom farmer. (laughs) Uh, What I found was that the the skills I lacked um, led me to having to improvise more often because uh, I was just less organized than I really would like to have been. And so, you know, constantly finding myself just, ah, shucks, you know, I, I forgot something. And I, you know, I've been ADHD AF my whole life and I've gone through the evolution of medications in that field and, you know, have something to say about each one of them. But 
I, it's always been a struggle of mine. It's, you know, it's, you can set out to uh, um, get something done and get distracted on the way. And that's normal for everyone, but some people it's just very intense. Uh, and having the structure of military, you know, helped uh, sort of reinforce the more positive aspects of the way I work as an individual. And, you know, coming out of that, life is very different because you, once you have a taste of it, you're like, oh, I like having structure and discipline and all this stuff. And it's like, all right, try figuring that out on your own now. <laughs> so I found uh, the hard part when you're an entrepreneur is getting yourself out of bed because knowing that you're the only one that suffers if you don't, like that is like the final frontier of motivation. Because when you have a job, you have this like external accountability. Well, I don't want to get fired. But when you're your own boss, who's going to fire you? Except cap capitalism, essentially, when people stop buying your product and you go broke. Oh, and, but yeah, that doesn't sit terrifying. in when you're waking up at five in the morning trying to convince yourself that you need to get out and do what you need to get done. This is so true. This is so true. Um you know, we in the early days were doing everything ourselves. And I would constantly be up, you know, harvesting mushrooms, you know, at 11 o'clock. I've finished around. I mean, I've had days where I had to harvest in the morning and then do like a bagging production and then harvest again in the evening. Because uh, in the summertime, things were just going so fast. And, you know, finish a harvest at like 2 a.m. And then, you know, have to get back up at, you know, I might sleep in in that instance to like seven, but, uh, you know, normally we're getting up pretty early, you know, five or six. We, we tried to change it up during the pandemic and we we're just like, you know, pandemic going on, sleep as late as you want. Cause we laid off all, the, you know, we had to lay off all of our staff. So it was, it was kind of like that, but we gave ourselves permission to catch up on sleep. Yeah, there is that, that component yeah. where you just got to, okay, we need to listen to our bodies. We need to take the reality of what's around us and realize, yeah, we're probably going too fast and we need to slow down. Or just take the, the universal slap in the face that COVID gave everybody that we were going too fast and we really did need to slow down. Well, the slowing down thing, I don't argue with. Um, I felt like things were moving at a pace I was uncomfortable with before the pandemic for sure. And, uh, you know, living on a mushroom farm, things are at a pretty slow pace to begin with. Um, so, you know, it was interesting to see, you know, people's response to, you know, what I would consider to be kind of just the way things normally are, where you're like at home all the time, you don't see anyone, <laughs> nobody comes over to visit, you don't go anywhere else. Uh, you know, that was kind of normal before the pandemic. Uh, and so it was interesting to see, uh, this is what we normally do. Yeah. Do you guys have a vision of where you want to maybe adjust the business as hopefully the world reopens here in the next year? Oh, absolutely. Uh, you know, one of the hardest things with mushroom farming is, growing to your sales and matching those two numbers. And we've, we've experimented with 
uh, you know, building databases to, you know, keep track of this stuff and predict um, when everything's going to be available. And we've gotten pretty good at that, actually. And so right before, you know, before the pandemic, we were doing pretty well with mushroom growth. Um, and since then, it's just been about going local and smaller containers and uh, getting in grocery stores. Um, but what we really are trying to uh, square is uh, what do you do when you grow more mushrooms than you can sell? Is having a go-to answer for that. And, you know, our answer is basically then to dehydrate things so that, you know, you got more mushrooms than you need. Well, they're going to go bad if you don't sell them. So just dehydrate them and extend their shelf life for a year. Uh, and so trying to figure out what to do with those afterwards has been the, the challenge. And so uh, we're finally finding our way into markets of, of uh, you know, supplements and um, uh, powders and value-added stuff. And uh, we've been in sauces now doing it that way. And, you know, that's, that's the way we want to be able to do is just to grow, uh, you know, the amount of mushrooms we want to grow, which, you know, that can, um, that can be quite a bit, but, you know, we, when we try to max out the farm, we end up going crazy and we need to hire more people than we can really keep, you know, it's a, it's a very delicate thing to you know, have a mushroom farm operating at full capacity, uh, at least at our size, um, because it's a lot of work. Uh, so, you know, there's a comfort point where with the people we have available and the time that, you know, we want to, you know, put our lives, <laughs> put, you know, into it, uh, there's, you know, there's a tempo that we want to be at that allows us to always meet our orders for our chefs and our groceries, and then to put the rest of it into, uh, you know, something we know is going to have value. And that's been a real struggle getting to that point. But you know, the pandemic helped uh, get people talking who weren't talking before uh, in the food distribution channels. And so we found our way into uh, you know, working with some really lovely people who are doing some cool stuff. Um, they've got this kitchen in Lexington that uh, is a way to employ people who have, you know, are looking for work that don't have any skills. Uh, that they feel they can market otherwise. And it's basically work in a food kitchen that processes things for other farmers. And it's kind of outsourcing that work and uh, getting it done. And they're very organized and very good at what they do. So they can, it's kind of like having a, a co-packer, except it's more of a custom process. So uh, having those connections game changer for us. So it also sounds like you're still expanding on some of those almost missing components way back when, before you started the Navy, because what also maybe was missing before you went in the Navy 
is those connections to a wider view of how you could fit into the world. And what you're also exploring now with those connections is the wider view of how mushrooms can fit into the world in so many different ways and understanding how, like this is something that always kind of amazes me, but the the brain has such a narrow focus often what's in front of us, but the world is so wide, but yet we never really feel that width. We only feel how narrow and how much of a box we feel into. But really, like once you start having conversation, I mean, the fact that me and you were talking because we stayed at a hip camp at your house, like that type of random width of just continuing to explore all the different ways that people call happy, that in itself is something that I feel like we often get messed up in in the wrong order or even don't even explore as veterans on the other side of transition because we often maybe don't feel comfortable in real real life and inner having those conversations, but then limit adding width to even understanding like there's a world where everything could have went away during Corona because you just could have said, you know what? I don't have any more ideas, but knowing that you had this kind of like almost initial handicap a little bit that you knew you like, I had to widen and figure out where to plug this in. It was still kind of closing the gap on some of those early things that you were missing. Absolutely. That, um, you know, filling in these gaps, widening the circle, you know, making the connections, that is, I mean, it's, it's where it's at. And everybody I know in the food industry is, you know, they are a measure of what connections they can be. You know, all these people are trying to connect everyone. Um, and it's like when there's a global pandemic going on, it's a lot harder to make those connections uh, when you're moving things from place to place. But it's a lot easier when all you got to do is put two people in, in contact. Um, and that was something I'm grateful for was that, you know, a lot of people were just like, hey, you know, uh, let's stop pretending like we're competing uh, for every single thing. And a lot of relationships changed. I, I, you know, I'm grateful for that evolution uh, in particular. So I hinted in the beginning, and I don't want to disappoint anybody listening. And this was something we dove into when you were doing the tour on your farm. What are some of the things that people have no idea that are true about mushrooms that they really, not necessarily should know, because it doesn't really help you in your day-to-day life. But there's just really interesting things to question what else you might not know. Because mushrooms are in this unique category where often they're doing the opposite of what you normally think something would do or what you would expect. And I feel like learning about these things where you don't know where the universe shows up different, like that is almost proof that there's other areas that I need to learn as well. And then that, again, widens my view and questions and gets me more kind of belief and confidence in these different areas. What are some of those random things that uh, people need to know about mushrooms that they don't know? Mushrooms communicate and are very sensitive. And so, you know, we, we sometimes play music to them and believe that that makes a difference. Um, but 
in particular, they they communicate with themselves. Uh, we do everything in small bags, uh, and you can see how as the fungus is colonizing this bag, it's just, we're talking about a bag of sawdust the size of a football, and you know, pick a spot on that bag and just insert some live fungal organism. And from that one spot that you insert the fungal organism into that bag, it's going to propagate to the rest of the bag. And it moves kind of like a wave just down across it where the fungus part is white, the bag of dirt is black, and you just see this whole bag just turn white over the course of its colonization. And when it reaches the bottom where it can't go anymore, things start changing up at the top only then. Uh, and so you see this sort of communication where it starts telling itself, you know, hey, we're out of room. And at that point, it starts trying to break through where, you know, where it, uh, where it can. And a lot of times that's that point where you put the, the spawn into the bag. Uh, we have a, a filter there uh, and it can break through the filter, but it doesn't until it gets done colonizing the bag. And so, you know, it's interesting to see how it waits until it gets to the bottom, like runs out of room, and then starts communicating to itself, hey, I'm out of room. And then it breaks through the bag. Um, you know, I would say, oh, well, Maybe that's just a coincidence, but I've seen it happen like a million times. So, you know, that one always gets me. And then just how sensitive they are. I mean, they're detecting the humidity, the carbon dioxide, uh, the light, you know, at the temperature, and they're making adjustments on the fly as things change. And it's always to save itself or to get it, you know, to the next generation. And you kind of see this very heroic attempt uh, every time something gets out of whack in its environment, uh, it tries to respond in a way that's going to help it the most. And it's always coming up with something new or, come, you know, it's just like, it's, it's figuring something out and you, you can see the kind of fractalization of its behavior of like, try a bunch of different things. Okay. These are the things that are working. Let's do all of it this way and really get a feel of like, this is how nature approaches things. Like we're going to go every direction at once and we're going to see which, you know, which are the easiest. And from there, we're going to see which ones gain the most resources. There was one other fact that you mentioned when we were visiting about how they breathe like we do, which oh, yeah. really kind of blew my mind because I hadn't heard that 
in the context of a plant because we're programmed to think the opposite. Right. Well, for one, they're not plants. Plants are plants. Mushrooms are fungus. Uh, and they have their own kingdom. Uh, and they do things differently. So they breathe oxygen. They do what I say they breathe. They take it in. Uh, and they convert oxygen to carbon dioxide. Then they let it out. Uh, you know, the interesting uh, thing that separates fungus from just about everything else is that they do the digestion of nutrients on the outside. So they excrete enzymes into the environment and they break down any nutrients that are around them. Then they absorb those nutrients once they're broken down. And, you know, so that way they don't have any internal organs or anything like that. Uh, and even bacteria have uh, are more like individual cells where they've got different things going on. Fungus, it's like every cell of a fungus is, fun, you know, they don't differentiate until they start doing reproduction. Yeah, that like the whole thing is just it. It challenges what you normally accept about the world when you assume that like. Even well, I'm sure it's the same thing when scientists are doing like underneath uh, the ocean. Um, like there's just certain things that defy like what they expect to find versus what they do see. And I imagine when you start talking, especially about like magma and stuff under the ocean and bubbling out, it has a very similar footprint in the way of you've got all this pressure to to go out in every direction and whichever cracks are the weakest, that's the direction you're going. And funguses, that's kind of how they, they move in that same way. They push out in every direction, whichever direction or, you know, is, is yielding uh, the best way, but they just double down on that. And so you see, you know, these big eruptions sometimes of, uh, it, it broke through a, a soft patch in the uh, substrate and things start happening very quickly. Uh, yeah, they double in size every 24 hours when they start blooming mushrooms. So that's one fun thing. It starts as a little pinhead and then can be the size of your hand, uh, you know, a day and a half later, the temperatures, right? Like there's there's just so interesting of a world. So hopefully that like opens up to the listeners just this world that you might not have known about, but that definitely is worth Googling and reading more about. And that maybe this in this episode has inspired you to look up maybe being your own mushroom farmer. Because there was one other fact that I learned that there was only like 200 mushroom farmers in the United States where all the mushrooms come from. So I also feel like it's still the golden age for people that wanting to step into growing mushrooms, would you correct it as the golden age or is it still kind of like, is this as peak that we're going to get? I think what we're finding is that there, the golden age is being extended. I would say that if you had gotten into the mushroom farm lifestyle, like a couple of years before we did, that was probably the golden age because there were really only a handful of people doing it. And, only a handful of them really knew what they were doing. And, uh, you know, 
it was such a novel thing for a long time. Uh, nowadays, what we're finding is that large distribution channels aren't great for gourmet mushrooms because uh, a lot of chefs are going to be using oyster mushrooms and this kind of stuff, and they just don't ship well. Uh, you can do certain things, but if you're a fine dining establishment and you want to have fresh oyster mushrooms, you have to have a local farm. Or, at, you know, the next best thing would be a regional distributor that has a local mushroom farm. Uh, but once you start getting outside of your region, they're hard to deal with. The shelf life is incredibly short and they, uh, they change in appearance. So you can still use them much longer than they look picture perfect. And, uh, you know, that's a, a struggle we have is that, you know, people buy a mushroom, they want it to look good. True. It's got to look like a picture on a catalog, even yeah. a few days after it's oh, been yeah. picked. Yeah. And we've always stood behind every mushroom we grow. And so our, for our chefs, you know, appreciate uh, the work that we put into their aesthetic as well as their, um, you know, nutrient content. And so it's, it's always been a real easy sell. It's kind of the whole package of here's a beautiful mushroom that uh, is good for you. And we only use three ingredients, sawdust, wheat bran, and water. And then uh, uh, for the other ones, we use sawdust, uh, soy hole, and water. So it's, uh, you know, they're just, they're good for you. They're beautiful. It's an easy bag uh, until the restaurants all shut down. Until COVID hits. Yeah, until COVID hits. Well, Andrew, this interview has been just what I wanted to be, a good interview to crack open fatherhood, entrepreneurship, and real life in a way that I don't think many people challenge themselves deep enough to really look at how they can decide to be happy on their own terms. And that's why I initially just like found the beauty in your story as I was hearing about it is just how you found your own path and how different it was but how much you made it your own. So I really appreciate you being open and honest with us in the podcast. I just have one question left for you that we I ask all the dads before they leave. And what is a piece of parting dad advice that you want to make sure that every dad knows that you maybe had to learn the hard way? Or is one that like, man, this is just dad advice that keeps on giving because I keep having to relearn it over and over maybe? Yeah, the one, it was... Uh... It was a piece I learned uh, subconsciously and came out in a dream. And it was that, and, and it's, I'm just going to tell you the advice and not get into the rest of it. <laughs> when you're with the baby, be with the baby. And every time I lose sight of that, things go awry. Um, but you know, it's, I, when I set the time aside or when I just, you know, decide, Hey, I, we're going to go play, uh, or, you know, I, and make that decision that I, there's, I'm going to put my phone away. I'm going to 
not be distracted and not let myself get into other stuff. Like uh, when my son comes and says, Hey, daddy, can you play? I know. Say yes, be with the baby and, uh, and, and be with the baby. You know, it's, I, I still call him a baby. He's, he's a, a fine young man, but uh, when you're with the baby, be with the baby. I love that because there is so much to get just distracted with in life. But the simplicity of that advice is one that like a busy dad needs to hear, a military dad needs to hear, that you just can't multitask. And I first learned this when our kids were really young and they get sick because they were daycare kids. So sick was just almost something that came with the, with the, the role. And initially, I was always like, oh, I can take care of a baby and try to work. Or when they were toddlers, try to take care of the toddlers and work. And it was always a complete shit show every single time of either they didn't let me work because they just wanted snuggles. And it was just literally, I mean, I remember times with my son, Dylan, just sitting on the couch all day and... He was still too young to like understand what was going on TV. So I essentially just binge watched like Seinfeld, I remember. And just like that was what the day looked like. And then I remember as a supervisor, my employees would try to do that on my team. And I was like, nope, I'm not. I'm going to shortcut the learning here for you. Just take the day off. Focus on your kid. Because this duality of trying to balance them is just going to ask too much. And you're going to get frustrated. And your kid's probably going to have to bear the brunt because you're going to get frustrated and probably lose your temper on them. Yep. That's it. And uh, yeah, it's, yeah, I love listening to your show because I always learn something. Uh, and these, uh, uh, every dad has just such a, you know, their own experience and I'm trying to learn from all of them. So I'm so glad to be here. And, uh, part of the group sharing what they learn. I hear you. And that, that story of learning is something that like this podcast is based off of because of where my story came. Like most of this podcast come from the pit of my own story. And it's either my lesson that I've had to learn or it's someone else humbling and saying like, yes, I messed up and here it is. And this is how we can learn from it together. Like that's the key part that most military dads get wrong is we weren't, designed to ever figure this out by ourselves. Absolutely. That, and that's, yeah, that's, it's great to, it's great when you share that information. This is the most valuable stuff. And I don't know how many people, uh, you know, have, are just so close to the relationship they want to have. They just, just, there's something eluding them that they're not getting. And someone else, you know, probably went, you know, been there and done that and just to have those lessons learned uh, i applaud you ben for putting yourself out there and making this knowledge available so you got my kudos well thank you andrew for hosting us and graciously giving us some mushrooms and giving us a story that day and even though the weather wasn't great and so it was just a lot of good times when we were there and thank you for coming on the podcast tonight like this story i know is going to help bring a dad home because it's going to give him a path that maybe he never even thought was possible. So again, just thank you for your time tonight. And I'm looking forward to 
getting this episode out there and helping dads come home. Thank you for all you do, Ben. Glad to be here. And 